get into Friday night when we get to the men's retreat. Listen, there are some things that God wants you to do and God wants you to experience that you just can't skid into. I almost guarantee you, if you skid into this meeting every Sunday morning, you walk away with very little compared to what you could have walked away with. You got to prepare to meet God. Amen? The God of the universe says, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. And sometimes God hides himself from us to get up on Friday. It'll be Sunday morning before you start feeling like I'm engaging God. Don't do that. Don't waste the weekend, men. So start getting some time with God today, this week. Start preparing to meet and encounter God. And this little resource very simple, but it's very helpful. I think it'll point you in a direction that'll be very meaningful. Um, I, I highlighted this book last week, Required Reading. If you want to get into heaven, I think you have to have read this book last time I checked. Uh, Prayer by Timothy Keller, his most recent book, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. It is outstanding. I think it will be my number one recommended resource for prayer. Uh, so please get a copy. I think we've ordered some more, but we sold out last week and probably will sell out again this week, but you can get them pretty quick and easy just by going online and downloading that or getting it ordered. All right. Well, we're in part two this week of a little series that is more about God capturing our attention at the beginning of 2015 with some stuff that Lakeview Christian Center needs to hear and I need to hear. And this is, this is God pulling us aside and saying, listen, listen to me in this category right now. So I've just titled this Drawing Near. The last week we started this little mini-series, and we started it by locating our lives in the context of the Bible's descriptions of a famine, of people starving to death. And that's, that's pretty highlighted in scripture. There's lots of situations where famines occurred and God draws life lessons from them in scripture. Uh, if we could get in our minds that the church can look like a gathering that, that is spiritually more like a refugee camp than it is like a people who are really fit and doing great spiritually on the inside, right? In, in, the, in the secret places of your life, uh, you might not look like you look on the outside. Do you recognize that? You can be all smiles. You can be busy. You can got it together. You dress well. You're well-fed. Your time in life, you're a big successful person in some category somewhere. Your family walks in like little ducks behind you. And spiritually, you can be in a really, really bad way. All that stuff on the outside doesn't really tell you exactly what's going on on the inside. It gives you a little bit of an idea, but it doesn't tell you exactly what's going on on the inside. You could be starving to death spiritually and look very fat on the outside. Right? Jesus said these wise words in the midst of his own day with temptation in the wilderness. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? That's, that's how we're designed to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's, that's kind of invisible, isn't it? That's intangible. That's spiritual in nature. It's interactive in, in a way that's not like the breads of this world. 
the natural things that scream at us and get us out of bed in the morning and adjust our schedules when we run hard after them, when we freak out and worry about them, we make sure those things are done a certain way. But man's not called to live by bread alone. Man's called to be sustained and receive his nutrition spiritually. Because spiritually, listen, spiritually is the thing in you that's hurting the most. Can you amen me even if you're over 50? I mean, I'm standing up here this morning. All of a sudden my hip has decided it doesn't like life this morning. I have no idea why. I just I got a pain. Uh, right. So I, I get that. You know, there's some physical things. But I, I know this, that when I hurt... It's the invisible parts in me that hurt the most. That's the stuff that keeps you up at night and makes you worry and freaked out. Uh, There's a spiritual dimension to getting something from God. And you and I can live in a famine. We can be starving to death. And I used the illustration last week. I want to hang on to it because I think it's just, it, it really describes where we are is we are a people in danger of mistaking tasting the things of God for digesting the things of God. And make no mistake, when you go through the eating process, tasting is part of the day that things will be digested. It's, it's the introduction to it, right? I mean, the restaurants make it look attractive so your eyes are caught by it. Boy, that looks really good. Your mouth starts to water. All of a sudden, anticipation is there. You put that food in your mouth, you chew it up. All that is the beginning process of digestion. But you know, if it doesn't go farther than that, it, there's no nutrition value for you as a person. You know, that, the adage we said last week, you are what you eat. Well, that, that's digestion makes that true. It's, it's taking these molecular particles that go past your mouth and your taste buds into the esophagus, through the stomach, into the intestines where this breakdown event begins to take place over time where things are broken down and then into your bloodstream they go and into tiny molecular structures they come and get dumped like little wheelbarrows full of help into your cells And then all of a sudden your eyes brighten up and your hair stops falling out and your body comes to life as a result of nutrition being distributed. Can I listen? The Christian life is that way as well. If all you do is taste things, and I I didn't mean to insult this meeting. I hope I didn't insult this meeting last week by calling this a tasting room. But in some ways, it's a tasting room. You're going to get introduced to some thoughts today. You're going to get a taste for them. You're going to walk out of here with a sense of, that's that's a little salty. Yeah, I got that. A little sweet. Okay. Bitter. Uh, Whatever. So we can describe the doctrines of God and who God is by our brief encounter and tasting and considering them right on the front end of digestion. But digestion is, is sitting with those things in a prayerful, meditative way that they become who we are. That's what Christianity is called to be. You can be tasting things and starving to death all at the same time. Malnourished in sad and amazing ways. Right, isn't it interesting? Because you and I live in an age of information. Here would be a huge concern. We live in an age of information. You get the opportunity to taste more stuff than you know what to do with. 
blog posts and stuff online and there's a devotional for everybody, you know, devotionals for people with hangnails. I mean, it's just devotionals for everyone that just break things down into a quick taste. Mm, Okay. Got a little taste of that. But yet the digestion element becomes missing. And you and I lack transformation. We lack deep encounters with God. We lack a big God in our lives. We've just tasted from a distance. And yet there are people who have lived with a whole lot less information, who have lived much more deep and effective lives. I mean, you understand if you're a Christian, we've been studying the book of Acts. A Christian in the first century, do you know how much tasting opportunities they had? They didn't have a Bible app. They didn't have a Bible. You know what they had to do? They had to remember. Remember that dude, Paul, that came to town a few years ago and he hung out here for a few months and he had those teaching times and then he wrote a letter all of about 238 words to us. And and remember that one time when they read the letter to us all publicly? They they didn't go like, make copies of that and give it to everybody. They had an opportunity to taste very little, but they turned the world upside down because they digested a lot, even though they only tasted a little. You ever hear stories about people who have been amazingly sustained while in prison and they had like one page of the Bible? That was it. They didn't have meeting after meeting to go to. They didn't have Bible after Bible. They didn't have commentaries and books. They had one page of the Bible. And then you encounter those people and they've got this enormous God that they have always clung to and put their hope and trust in who has been faithful to me. And you're staring at their circumstance and you're going, what? You've been rotten away in in a cell in horrible conditions, and that's your version of God, that big and amazing and awesome? These people who have tasted very little, but digested a lot. Which would you rather be, a big taster or a big digester? This, this is a, I believe a word for Christianity, but it's, I'm just going to own it as a pastor in a local church. It's a word for us. If we don't do something about learning to draw near to God, to digest things, we are going to starve to death. You cannot survive on tasting. Right? So look in your outline there with me. I want to define what I mean by the term drawing near today. I want drawing near to be this encounter exchange with God. It is digestion for us spiritually. <clears throat> Look at the way this term gets used. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. All right, a lot of stuff we could talk about there. I just want you to see some posturing here. There's an event being described here. When you Go, the God of the universe who is everywhere all the time, who is in some way accessible in every place in his creation. Where can I go from your presence, the psalmist said. But yet something is happening here. When you go to the house of God to draw near. So whatever you were doing before you went wasn't called drawing near. 
Ezekiel 43. <clears throat> you shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord, a bull from the herd for a sin offering. All right, so I want you to catch the offering element, but just the fact that there were a unique group of people who had a unique activity in their life that was called drawing near. And that's what they did. And they quote, ministered to the Lord in their drawing near. All right. So whatever everybody else was doing, these people were doing something that was described differently. Okay. I want to rescue us from an oversimplistic and overreaching application of some other truths here. These verses are leaving some people out. Does everybody see that with me? And it's leaving some of the activity of your life out. Does everybody see that? Come to life for me. Because if you miss this, we're wasting our time today. If you think that everything you're doing is drawing near and everybody is drawing near, then you're not reading the same Bible I'm reading. So there's some things that you're doing that aren't described this way. They're not wrong. They're good. You should be doing them. They're part of your life. God's called you to them, right? So no fault in that. But this is, this is a unique activity. Zephaniah 3, verse 1, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. And that's an interesting thing. This is the not drawing near life that gets described right here. This is the person who doesn't find their substance in God, their revelation about life in God, their daily bread is not about what God is speaking spiritually to them. They're described in this passage. They are those who have a woe pronounced on them because of rebellion and defilement. And that's an interesting posture and reality. And I think it's inseparable from a failure to draw near and for you to experience the nearness of God in your life. You will develop a rebellious attitude. It's inevitable. And your life will speak of defilement. Not maybe in every category. You might not make news headlines in either one of these categories. But in your own little personality way, you will find a way to be rebellious and you will find a way to defile your life because you lack the influence of the nearness of God in your life. It's equated with not listening, right? She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction and she does not trust in the Lord. And that's interesting because I think when you get around God, the opposite of those things happen. You get in the presence of God, you experience the nearness, the holiness, the righteousness, the purity, the life of God. I think these things become qualities of yours. I think you begin to listen, right? Why, why do we listen? Because I need to hear something that's being said. See, it's my self-sufficiency. It's my arrogance. It's, it's my high opinion of myself that makes me not listen to you. Ever get in those conversations with people that you're talking and you just know that person's just thinking about what they're going to say next? They're not listening to you. Because quite honestly, you got nothing that they need. There's nothing that you're saying. There's no perspective that you're bringing that they really need to have. They've got it. They're just waiting to be able to tell you something next. Well, you know, you get around God 
And you draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, Ecclesiastes just said, right? You get around God, you're going to find out you want to hear from God a whole lot more than you're going to want him to hear from you. He's got good stuff to say. He's got necessary. He's got insights. I, you know, I'm, I'm not smarter than a fifth grader or whatever that program was. So drawing near to God postures us to be listeners. It postures us to be able to accept correction. You get with somebody who can never receive correction. Uh, you gotta, do you get around God at all? Right? Is, it, is it a foreign thing for you? I mean, you get in the presence of God, God who is love, God who is merciful, God who is holy and righteous and, and giving and supplying into our lives. But you, you get a sense of rightness and wrongness. You just automatically do. So there's a sense of correction that comes. I'm out of bounds. My attitude toward that person is out of bounds. I don't know how many times, I, I, you know, it would just be a meter that's constantly turning for me, that I might be in a situation where... I'm in the right, but my attitude about that situation is wrong. Now, that's an interesting thing to discern because you're not discerning that I'm, I'm wrong and doing this wrong. No, you actually are standing on the right ground. You actually handled something correctly, but something else is in that moment with you and your attitude is wrong. Do you, do you hear God speak to that? Or is it, no, no, I'm right. I just, I'm in touch with the fact that I'm right. And I can't hear God touch anything else in my life. See, this is the conditions that arise out of a life that's not been near to God. Do you understand how much this contributes to the human conflict in our lives? You understand what it's like for husbands and wives not to have a nearness to God thing going on in their life and then try and live with each other? Or raise kids? Or be in a church? And be around people who mess up and who, who don't do toward you what you hoped they would do, what you expected that they would do. But with my attitude is these things, it reflects I've not been near to God. Listen, it's very hard for the people of God to be near to each other if we haven't been near to God. Just a fact. This doesn't work well. Hebrews chapter 4. I right, jump in the New Testament, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, now this is, this is be, carefully listen to this verse. Where is this verse located? In the book of Hebrews. Where is the book of Hebrews located? In the New Testament, Right? So we are living in the New Testament here. These are words directed to New Testament believers. These aren't those poor people. If you read your Bible this way, those poor people in the Old Testament had a second-rate thing. These are New Testament Cadillac version Christians. All right, so do you, do you want to go ahead and share with me how much they're lacking? Because I read the New Testament Christian. He's, he's got his stuff. He, is, you know, he has been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. I didn't make that up. That's in the Bible. So that's a New Testament Christian who is being told in this passage to draw near to the throne of grace that he may receive. Well, I, I, I thought I had everything. Well, how do you read this passage then? How do you interact with a passage that tells you as a New Testament Christian who is indwelt by the Spirit of God to then draw near to God's throne of grace? 
Right? This is New Testament theology. And what's really interesting here is this drawing near is enabling us to receive God who is the God of grace and mercy. It says we need to draw near to receive grace and mercy. Listen, this is not an absolute verse. I don't, I don't believe this means the only grace and mercy in your life is that which you have attained by drawing near to God and getting near the throne of grace and there's the exchange that, went, that took place. No, 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 no. That's not fair to the scriptures either. But this is actually telling you that there is a receiving that only occurs when you do draw near in order to receive it. If he, Hebrews 7, verse 19. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Right? In James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Does, does that twist any of your New Testament theology in the wind? I mean, it kind of shouldn't, right? Because it's the New Testament saying this. So I understand that, you know, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We're indwelt by the spirit. Christ is in us. Uh, we're seated in heavenly places. I, I understand. My, my bank account says full, rich, beyond measure, you know, inheritance in Christ forever. All right, if I check the paperwork, that's, that's what I got going for me. And then the Bible turns around and tells me, Keith, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, whatever it is that all that other stuff means, this still needed to be said. And I think it's a tragedy that some people have got some really, really high theology floating around. And, and at best, they're tasters. You sure you're handling that theology right? If that's all your theology inspires you to do is to taste every once in a while and not really digest and get deep in the things of God, you might not be understanding that as well as you think you are, even though you think you're ready to write a book on it. I think James is on to something. I think there is a reality of our drawing near to God where we experience God drawing near to us. And you and I can't survive without that. I think I wrote this in your outline. Drawing near is a movement terminology or a posture location terminology that involves definite action, not just theological concepts. It is more akin to experiential exchange than it is to information. Right? When we see people drawing near to God, there, there is this exchange thing that happens in their lives. They, they get affected by this. The information that they knew before they drew near to God is still the information that they knew before, but they are affected differently. Right, Isaiah, remember we're going to study this. We're going to look at Isaiah's encounter with God in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train was filling the temple. And the beasts that God had created were crying out to God, holy, holy, holy. And they never cease to decry and cry out about God's holiness all the time that I was observing this, I fell to the ground and I said, woe is me, I am undone for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. All right, 
Isaiah is going to emerge from that encounter a different man. How many of y'all are believing that that was the first time Isaiah had ever heard that God was holy? Anybody thinking that? Isaiah, raised as an Israelite, part of the nation of Israel, never heard God was holy. What? How about that? In the year King Uzziah died, I discovered God was holy. Well, in some way, you did discover, didn't you, Isaiah? You discovered holiness in a whole different way than you knew it before. How did that happen to this man? Because whoever Isaiah is to you and I, and the mere fact that you and I are still talking about him is severely and extremely and completely linked to Isaiah chapter 6. Otherwise, he's just some dude living in the dirt that you and I would never have heard about. It was his encounter with God. It was drawing near to the presence of God that turned his world upside down. Right, Daniel... You find Daniel, I think it's Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel has this encounter with a revelation of God's word. He is reading the prophet Jeremiah. I don't think he's reading the prophet Jeremiah for the first time. He's reading the prophet Jeremiah. Remember, I mean, this, is, this is back in the day. There wasn't a whole lot to read, and it wasn't like there's a good program on TV tonight. He had a few things to read, and Jeremiah happened to be one of them. So I think he's read this before, but he has a meeting with God that suddenly his eyes are opened and he understands the prophecy of Jeremiah about the 70 years. And he looks and calculates about where we are in the land of exile. And this revelation brings him to life for the people of God to lead them and to communicate with them. But you know what's interesting? This isn't Daniel's first time drawing near either. Some of us want to have these amazing encounters with God, but we only want to go after that like once or twice. It was, it was Daniel's pattern of life, the Bible says. Remember when the decree was made by the Persian king that nobody can pray except to the, the, the Persian deity. You, you can no longer pray on your own. And the Bible says, as was Daniel's practice, he prayed three times a day and he continued to do that. This wasn't new for him, right? And this is, this is the thing about encountering God that, that I think sometimes we get discouraged about. Because I know, I'm, not, I'm hoping everybody's going to leave from this meeting and seek to draw near to God. And, and maybe you're not going to have an Isaiah moment. Maybe you're not going to have a Daniel moment. Uh, but, you know, when, when you guys watch the sports review on Sunday evenings and uh, the ticker tape across the bottom comes and the running backs who had great games and so-and-so ran for 148 yards. And like, wow, 48 yards, 25 carries. Wow, wow. Do uh, you ever look at the individual carries? You know, most of them are two to three yards and dirt and his face buried in the ground. And another two to three yards, another two to three yards. But if you break two or three of them for 30 or 40 yards, all of a sudden you got 145 yards on the day. But out of those 25 carries, three or four of them are worth talking about. 22 of them, they were just this average, ran two yards, got pulled down in the background, ran into the back of the center, didn't go anywhere. They won't make the highlight reel. But if you want to break one for a touchdown... You got to run the ball. 
And if you want to encounter God, you got to get around God. Every encounter is not going to be written down like it's an Isaiah moment. But you're never going to have those moments if you don't have the mundane common moments with God. So listen, I know we want fireworks immediately, but God doesn't work that way. And it's not going to work that way for us. But let me go back to this reality here. Here's a terminology amidst covenant realities. God has made things covenantially true for us that the Bible makes a presentation to the people of God about, right? There is a reality for covenant beings in the new covenant with God of being near or far from God. Meaningfully connected or unaware of God and his presence. That's in the scripture along with these deep things that God has revealed to us. So I don't know whether you've noticed this or not, but all the positional truths that are in the New Testament, they don't silence all the imperative words in the New Testament. Have you noticed that? The same Bible that says, this is, this is, this is who you are. What's true about you? What's true about your future? This is, this is, this is. Turns around and says things like, strive to enter. Press on. Put off and put on. It's the same Bible saying the same thing to a group of people. What a mistake we have made. That we have thought making sense of that involves one or the other. It's just a mistake. Why don't we just stop trying to be smarter than the Bible? All these serious positional things are true, and yet the Bible still says, draw near, and God will draw near. That's true too, right? Here's what's interesting. Remember years ago, Henry Blackaby wrote a book that just really affected the church. It was called Experiencing God. Some of you guys will remember that book. And he wrote the book out of a prompting from God because the people of God well, he didn't use this illustration, were tasting, but they weren't digesting. They had some ideas floating around, but they were not experiencing the God of these ideas. He said this, God does not merely want you to read about him. He wants you to know him. When Jesus said eternal life is knowing God, he did not mean that eternal life is knowing about God. He was not referring to someone who has read many books and attended numerous seminars about God. He was talking about a firsthand experiential knowledge. We come to truly know God as we experience him in and around our lives. Many people have grown up attending church and hearing about God all their lives. But they do not have a personal, dynamic, growing relationship with God. They never hear his voice. They have no idea what God's will is. They do not encounter his love firsthand. They have no sense of divine purpose for their lives. They may know a lot about God, but they don't really know him. I would say they have tasted something, but they have not digested it. It has not become a rewrite of who they are because it's become part of who they are. And we said this last week, and I just, I just, I want to live in reality. You know, I don't want just a bunch of pleasant sounding ideas. And we're just a people with a bunch of really high lofty ideas. I want to live in the reality of these ideas. And so I don't want to, I don't want to taste grace and forgiveness. Just taste it, 
be able to debate with you about it, be able to tell you why this verse really means this with relation to grace and forgiveness. But yet in my own life, I am not gracious and I am not forgiving. I'm a taster. I don't want that. God's not interested in us having that. I don't want to know some things about faithfulness and loyalty. I just know some things about them. I know the Bible says something about God in relationship with this nation of Israel for years and years and years. And the, and the best illustration to use is that God went and married a prostitute in Hosea. Here, Hosea, I want you to illustrate my relationship to these people. Go marry a prostitute, one who sleeps with one person after another in unfaithfulness to me. And then look on my faithfulness to them. I'm not introducing Hosea to anybody here this morning, probably. You've probably heard that story. But if I get around this and I digest it, it becomes part of me. It becomes the motive for me. If the motivating force in the God of the universe is to be faithful to those who are unfaithful, is to do good to those who do harm to him, if that's who God really is and I've spent a little bit of time getting around him and I've digested some of that, well then I begin to do that to other people. I begin not to demand that you do to me a certain way or I will stop doing to you a certain way. What a tragedy. That, that is the body of Christ, the refugee camp of the body of Christ, where if you don't provide me a motive to treat you right, to get around you right, to talk about you right, to include you in my group, well, then I just won't. You know, I see that and I see it in my own heart and I wonder, God, are you just a stranger to us? Oh, but we all have words like covenant faithfulness in our vocabulary, don't we? We know the Hosea story. We know these things at a tasting level. They've not become who we are. I don't just want to know something about righteousness and purity in a culture that doesn't give a rip about anybody having the right to be the one who's right. This is a culture who doesn't care about that. As a matter of fact, this is a culture who's going to teach you that that position is wrong. It's wrong for you to believe that way. It's wrong for you to believe that there is a God who is the only one who has the right to be right. And he has the last say-so on everything. This world hates that message. And you and I live in this world. So at some point, I'm just warning you, and I'm actually describing some of you. Your version of righteousness will be so unlike God's version. You will have an accommodating, negotiable, optional version of righteousness that really at the end of the day leaves it up to the individual. Isn't that where we need to go? Listen, if there was no God in the universe, that's a stupid idea. Because it means that you're going to have lots of individuals who, 
who are going to do something at the expense of everybody else just because it's right for them. But that's not even the basis for our argument. The basis for our argument is righteousness is about what God has said is right. And that's not negotiable. The God of the universe hasn't given that away to any Supreme Court or anybody else in the land. It's his right to say what's right. It's his right to say what is pleasing to him, what is pure and what is not pure. I don't don't know all that came to mind when Isaiah declared, I live amongst the people who are unclean. But I can tell you in that moment, when he encountered God in that moment, he got a fresh new definition for righteousness and purity. Some of us are really, really desperately in need of getting a fresh definition in that category. And you're not going to get it by coming to the tasting room. You need to get it when you climb in the presence of God, like I said last week, and you in your prayer closet alone and naked where God can say anything to you. You've got no pretense. There's nothing about you you're trying to hold up or prop up for somebody else's benefit. It's just you and God and the voice of God speaking to you and addressing you the way he wants to with what he wants to say and undoing who you are and getting an accurate picture of who he is. And you will emerge from that meeting with a fresh definition like Isaiah did. What does it mean to relate to a holy, righteous, pure God? A.W. Tozer, recent, somewhat recent book that was put together, some of his writings called Experiencing the Presence of God. If you're a Tozer fan, you may not be aware that that book is available, but it is. He said, God created man expressly for the use of his pleasure and fellowship. That's hmm. God created you partly for fellowship with him. That's a primary reason why you exist. And, and yet many of us would say that seldom, if ever happens, I'm so busy. There's so much going on. And we have misplaced what God created us for just to be with him. Nothing in or of this world measures up to the simple pleasure of experiencing the presence of God. The spirit of restlessness breaking across the sea of humanity testifies to this truth, right? That restlessness comes when you're hungry and starving, you get dislocated, right? That's what famines do. Our whole purpose as created beings is to utilize our time delighting in the manifest presence of our creator, Can you just listen to that word for just a second? There's there's so much discussion and celebration today, rightly so, about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. The gospel is a means unto an end. The gospel is not the end of the road. The gospel is all that God did in Christ Jesus to reconcile a fallen world to himself. The gospel is taking us somewhere. It's taking us into the presence of God. It's taking us back from that which we lost and had fallen from. So it's amazing how we celebrate and make so much noise about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, and not love where it was taking us. Like, well, we love the doctrines of the gospel. We love to explain the gospel. 
But do we just love to be with the God who did the gospel so that we could be with him? That seems to have been missed. I don't know. This presence is both intangible and indescribable. Some things rise above explanation and human understanding, and this is one. Many Christians are filled with good information, but only a few mercy drops fall into their languid soul to satisfy the thirst for God's presence. Too many have never burst into the dazzling sunlight of God's conscious manifest presence. Or if they perchance have, it is a rare experience and not a continuous delight. Let me just introduce you to one particular story in Jesus' life because Jesus actually lived a life of drawing near. And and I think you can go there with me pretty quickly. This is a confusing element because if there's anybody who didn't need to draw near to God, it was Jesus. Wouldn't you say? I mean, isn't he already God? So if you're confused by the other concepts that we need to draw near to God, this one should really freak us out. But that's exactly the life that he lived. And, and he announced that this nearness to God was, it was an essential part of the program, if you will. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus to the multitudes, right? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's just another way of saying your souls will be satisfied. Your souls will have digested something that reaches into the deepest part of who you are. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Anybody who's going to come to Christ, this is the program. You want to know Christ and walk with him? This is the program. Come from wherever you are, displace yourself from where you are, from the way you think, from what you're doing, and find yourself at this location. Come to me. Not just come to ideas. Not just come to others who have ideas. Come to me and take a yoke upon you and learn of me. So this is what drawing near is about. Drawing near is about learning of God. It is at the very heart of being a disciple. As a matter of fact, it's the same word, mathetes and manthano, that the same word that describe a learning person. That's what a disciple is. So a disciple sits at the feet of Jesus to learn of him. And he does that by being yoked in this picture. Right? You guys remember the picture of a yoke? Right, that, that picture of a yoke, you know, there's two dimensions to it. And you got to mention both of them. There's the dimension that we all love, that yoking to Jesus. Here's Jesus and he's right there with us and we're together with him and we're yoked to him. And that's true. And that's part of presence and nearness to God. And then there's that other dimension that a yoke is something you got under. You submitted yourself to. Right, so nearness to God comes by submitting yourself to God. So this yoke, matter of fact, most of the time that the word yoke is used in scripture, it's more about submitting to something. So, you know, it may be that, that the nearness of God, right? When we yoke that oxen, you know, you had one oxen here and another oxen here. And rather than just let them be two independent oxen going this way and trying to pull something, they were yoked together so that together they accomplished the purpose 
pulling and, and helping and doing what the farmer needed him to do. But they did it as one because they were yoked together. So there's an element where you and I need to submit ourselves to God if we want to experience the nearness of God. You just can't be this lone ranger, run around, do whatever I want with my life the way I want it. I don't make time for God. I don't submit to the ideas of God. I've got a lot of stuff going on. That's an unyoked life. And there's no, there's no other explanation sometimes for why am I not experiencing the presence of God? Because I live an unyoked life. I don't submit myself to God and make myself accessible to him. And listen, Jesus lived his own life this way. You know, he had such an aware of the need for the nearness of God. He knew what it was that apart from me, you can do nothing. Remember that? But Jesus felt that way about his own life. I, I only do what I see the father doing it was the way he lived his own life. And so I'm going to take you to one moment here and you can be turning in your Bibles to Matthew 26. But I, I want to take you to the parallel version of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wants to learn something about drawing near to God. So as you're turning there to Matthew, let me just read from Luke, the same story. Luke chapter 22, verse 39 says, And he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Okay, this is the garden of Gethsemane scene. This is what's going to take place just before Jesus is arrested and all the wheels are put in progress for his crucifixion. This activity is about one thing. This is not an accident. This is not a by-thought. It's not like, you know, they had the, the Lord's Supper together and then they had some time to kill before the betrayers showed up. And what, are they, what do you do with time to kill? Well, I don't know. You wander out and maybe pray. No, this, this was the agenda. Arguably, this was the most important thing happening that night. Jesus went aside on the eve of the biggest event in human history with an agenda to pray. He pulled his disciples with him. He told them to pray. He got away from them and he got alone and he prayed. There's a place to greet life like what I have coming, I have to get near to God for. Whatever is coming into my life, whatever situation I'm facing, whether it's unknown or whether I know, this is going to be something. This is going to be overwhelming. It, it needs to be prepared in me by my nearness to God. I've got to get around God. If the Son of God had to get around God in this evening, and it was a priority, how on earth do I think I'm going to survive my own gardens of Gethsemane? without doing the same thing. Listen, you know, I know what this is like. I mean, I live life. You know, prayer becomes like the fire extinguisher in your house. Right now you're wondering if you have a fire extinguisher in your house, aren't you? <laughs> and you're definitely not sure you know where it is and you don't know if it's charged up at all. So if you had a kitchen fire, 
maybe the best thing you could do is just throw the thing at it. You know, just throw the whole thing at it. Because you don't know. Is it charged? Is it in good shape? And then if it was in good shape, would you even know how to use it? How many of y'all have ever practiced using a fire extinguisher, right? We got no, pra- a couple of y'all, good for you. Got no practice. It's like, hey, you know, when the, when the fire breaks out on the stove there and it's a grease fire and it's everywhere, I'm going to calmly pick the thing up and read the instructions. Uh, aim at the base of the fire. Now, no wonder I wasted the whole can. Uh, prayer is not a fire extinguisher. It's not something that we wait until life has burst into flames and then we pull it out of who knows where we left it last and try and make use of it so that God can show up in some great way and make a difference. That's not how Jesus handled prayer. As was his custom, he stepped away into the garden, right? As was his custom, Mark chapter 1. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Mark 6. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Luke chapter 6. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. This was Jesus' custom. This was not an unusual moment. Interesting. John chapter 4 tells the story of his disciples. He says, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? What did he run the Taco Bell while no one was looking? Right? Man shall not live by bread alone, guys. I have food to eat that you don't know about and you don't understand. He lived his life sustained by interacting with God. So the Garden of Gethsemane is not like a unusual moment for the son of God. It is what he always did. But there are a few lessons to learn from this. This is my last thing we'll talk about. Matthew 26, verse 36. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Anybody have any idea what that is all about? Now, I know sorrow and I know trouble, but I'm, I'm not the Lord of the universe. And those words are describing him. So I get sorrow and trouble and, and my pay grade, lots of sorrow and trouble are coming my way. But for him, even, there was a genuine experience of sorrow and trouble. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now, do you hear any urgency about intercession in this moment, about praying? This is the biggest event, guys. This is it. And I feel the weight of it. Pray for this. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know, it takes a second to read that. And the Bible doesn't, you know, sometimes when you read the Bible, you just need to be aware of what it is and is not telling you. Did Jesus say all that in five seconds? Did he say the first half of it? And then minutes later, he said the second half of it. 
My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Long pause, interaction with God, awareness about something about God and what God was doing, reminder, nevertheless, not what I will, Lord, what you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and he said to Peter, so you, you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass until or unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time saying the same words again. I mean, do you have any clue why this is happening this way? See, that prayer have some depth and some texture to it when you just stare at it for a second? It's not just a guy who flooded into a moment, who said some things that he needed to say and went on about his business. This is the third time grappling with this and wrestling with this in the presence of God. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. All right, now this is a man of action now. The man who went into this prayer time was a man who was sorrowful beyond measure. Now this is a man with his feet shod and he's ready to go. What made the difference? Well, I I think his encounter with God made the difference. I think his drawing near to God made the difference in the Garden of Gethsemane. So here, quick lessons. I'll just highlight these. Put them in your outline. There was the creation of a different setting to draw near to God. Jesus didn't draw near while he was um, riding the passenger shotgun seat in the chariot. When just doing something else. Matter of fact, he didn't want to be distracted. Even the son of God who knew something about hearing God, he had lived, this is the end of his ministry, all that he's done, he's done amazing things. He has heard God speak to him. Even when he has to go listen to God, he gets alone and he gets people away from him. They go to the garden to get away and then he gets away, he pulls a couple of disciples with them and then he gets away from them. And he's a stone's throw away. I don't know how far you can throw a stone, but he is not interacting with them. He is with God in this moment. So if you're going to have a drawing near element in life, I think you've got to, you've got to get away. You've got to have, create a different setting. There was real life in that prayer meeting. Uh, this, this was not just some informal run through some thoughts, technically drift off. And there was real life in that meeting. It's the real places of life that offer you and I the greatest chance to really encounter God. There was real thinking and discussion taking place. In in the most respectful way, I think prayer should sound a little bit like debate because it tells God you're paying attention. You actually are engaging the life that he's given you. You've got some concerns and some things to say to him about this. It's done humbly. It's done appropriately. But there is an inquiry here. There's some discussion going on. There's real exchange with conversation and convincing. 
Those are helpful words. I hope you install some helpful words in your prayer vocabulary. Do you emerge from your time of praying convinced? Because sometimes I just go in and complain and worry out loud. I call that prayer sometimes. I'm just, I'm just rehearsing with God all the things that are troubling me. And I'm, you know, thinking through why that did that and why didn't I and why did they and why did this. And then I just remember to make sure God's aware and I bring that to him. And then I leave the time with God as disturbed and uncomfortable and lacking faith as when I came in. That's not Jesus in this moment, is it? Or you and I wouldn't have experienced redemption. He emerged from his exchange with God convinced about something. I need to be armed. If you're going to crawl into a prayer closet with God, crawl in with the intention of walking out convinced about something. It'll make you listen different. There And listen, there was an intangible, non-natural impartation in this meeting. How do you explain Jesus... Getting aside the intensity of prayers that produce sweat and drops of blood, the confession of great sorrow and weightiness in this moment, these guys fall asleep and he now is mobilized saying, let's do this. How do you explain that? Something happened in this time. Something real happened in this moment. Prayer was real. An exchange really did take place. Something got deposited in that time with God, right? Luke twenty two forty three tells us, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, providing a strength that just moments earlier wasn't there. It was a real exchange and God's means of meeting him in this moment was to strengthen him by whatever the angel came and did. We don't even know what he did. But it was prayer that made him available to the angel to come and strengthen him for what God had called him to do. And this is is in the New Testament, right? Ephesians 3. Paul praying for the believers is that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Right, do you understand? Here's Paul praying for believers to experience strengthening. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Paul's the same guy. And then Peter helps out a little bit with this. You, you've been given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Doesn't that include strength? Don't I already have that? Well, listen, I, I, don't, I, don't, know, I don't know how much you can love a theology that you run around saying, I am strong, I am strong, I am strong, and live like a pipsqueak weakling all the time. Might you want to do something a little bit different than that? No, I've got big words. I've got really, really big words. I'm full of fear, unbelief. I'm walking over my shoulder constantly. There's no confidence in me. But, but I have every blessing in heavenly places. Well, you know, well, you're disconnected from it somehow. I'm glad you read that in the Bible. And it is true. But I don't think you've digested it because you don't smell like it. It's not oozing out of your pores. It was oozing out of his pores. And Paul prayed for people. He says, you know, I'm praying this way for you guys, that you would be strengthened in the inner man by the Spirit. I'm praying that'll happen to you. That's an encounter with God. Acts 4, right? 
Interesting prayer moment. Disciples have been released from jail. There's lots of threats. Things have gotten weird in Jerusalem for this fledgling church just starting out. And they have a prayer meeting. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Right? Strength came in through a prayer meeting. And when they came into the prayer meeting, they cried out saying, Oh, sovereign Lord, take note of their threats. Here's what I got on my mind, God. I've got threats on my mind. And they emerged from that prayer meeting saying, let's do this thing. What happened in that moment? A real exchange takes place. Prayer or drawing near imparts real strength. You emerge from those moments with something real that you did not have just moments before. Tim Keller says, prayer is a means to energy, writes J.I. Packer. Spiritual alertness, vigor, and confidence are the regular spinoff from earnest prayer on any subject. You can't get more basic than this. Prayer is the way that all the things we believe in and that Christ has won for us actually become our strength. Prayer is the way that truth is worked into your heart to create new instincts, reflexes, and dispositions. I love those three words. I want prayer to fly into those three categories for me. I want new instincts in me. No, you know, instinct, that, thing that, that instinctively you know it's true. I, you know, I, I've got to argue with myself to get things to be true to me sometimes. I want them to be instinctive to me. I want them to be the things that I'm first convinced of. I want reflexes, right? I don't want this life hits me and months later I respond to it. <laughs> I want the spirit of God to be so real and tangible that in that moment there's, there's a response from the living God. Dispositions. Oh, I won't even ask my family how they feel about my dispositions. It'd be embarrassing. Listen, I, you know, I put a, did I, did I write a big teetering moment in your outline there? Does it say teetering moment? Right. It should have a teetering moment with some question marks attached to it. <laughs> because in the garden of Gethsemane, I'm not sure it's, it's theologically safe to ever call Jesus being in a teetering moment. But if there ever was a moment that had any smell or possibility of sound and teetering, this was it. Father, if there's any other way to do this. I don't know what you do with that, but that's just a strange thing for the son of God to face in that moment. So for me, I have lots of teetering moments. I have way too many teetering moments. My prayers often are filled with negotiating and renegotiating life's deal with God. There are moments in which and, and, you know, these are my Gethsemane moments, but they're certainly not going to the cross for the universe. They're not this kind of a moment like the Son of God is experiencing. But for me, it just, this just looks beyond me. This looks like I don't know how to handle. I don't know what to do. I, I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I'm about to fail, mess this thing up terribly. So I, I renegotiate a lot harder than Jesus did. How many of you guys have given up after three times asking for something? If you're like me, if you really don't want to do it, um, you either have two techniques. You, you negotiate with God a lot more than three times, or you negotiate once and just never come back to the table. <laughs> it's like in your mind, you've made the decision. I ain't doing this. I've tried to talk God out of it, and I'm not doing it. 
I just don't go back and talk to him about it anymore. I just stay away from the presence of God. Listen, I, I, I complained to God about it just the other day. I, I, don't know, I don't know how God stomachs me. I don't. I'm so full of unbelief. I'm so full of doubt. I, I come to God with so little confidence in him sometimes. I, just, I don't know how he tolerates me anywhere near him. Teetering constantly. Lacking a sense of awareness about who God really is in this moment. I love singing the songs we sung this morning about the sovereign Lord. Listen, we sing because my soul needs to listen. Song helps us listen. I've got to listen to God. I've got to get convinced about who he is. But if I don't draw near, that doesn't happen. Right, two final thoughts from Mr. Tim Keller. Prayer reorients your view and vision of everything. Prayer brings new perspective because it puts God back into the picture. And I mean, we're freaked out because we stare at life and somehow over time we have misplaced God in that picture. And it's a godless reality for us. God's not near, he's not present, he's not faithful. He's not up to something, he's not sovereign, he's not ruling. Everything we know about God is absent from the picture and we stare at life and rightly panic. But prayer puts God back in the picture. So that's why we see everything differently when we pray. Everything in your life. Keller says the basic idea is that all the benefits of Christ's salvation, pardon, peace, God's love for us, that have been objectively secured for us, must be personally appropriated for daily life. The assurance of God's love, the promise of the Spirit's indwelling presence, the knowledge of our pardon, the access to His presence, the power to overcome our sinful habits. All these things are abstractions until they are inwardly received for our actual use, until they are digested. And that only happens when we pray. Listen, I, I don't know. I've got a little bit of an idea from reading the Bible, but I, I don't know all the life that God has for a Christian today, for you in particular, for this church. But I think when I look in Scripture and I see what it takes to live a life for the glory of God, I can almost guarantee you you and I will live far from that life if we live far from prayer. It takes real faith to live the life that God's called us to live. And that only comes when we've been near to God. Let's, let's stand up together. want you to answer a couple of questions in the presence of God. I want you to ponder what we've talked about the last couple of weeks. Question number one, do 
you understand what we're talking about. And if you don't, I mean, that's just a reflection on the preaching probably. <laughs> but it's a good thing just to be able to say, God, I, you know, I think I see a little bit of it, but I just I need to better understand this. But if you're here this morning and you, and you get this, you understand, you're aware of this is the truth in Scripture. You're aware and you're convinced that this is true. Drawing near to God is essential, life-altering, non-optional, severely beneficial, grace-filled, enabling a power source in life. You are convinced that that's true. Well, then here's my question. What will you do besides taste that this morning? Because apart from your own experience and maybe you've been pulling up old files of, man, I remember the times in the presence of God. I remember some of those occasions. Apart from that, all you have is taste at this moment. To really know and to experience, you're going to have to be near God. You're going to have to draw near to God. Lord, here's what I'm praying. Lord, I pray this for my own soul. Pray this for our church. Lord, that you would keep us in this coming year from starving to death. us from being a people in our sharp clothes and our full lives who the spiritual snapshot of our church looks like a refugee camp poorly clothed half naked looking for scraps to eat skinny 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 Lord may we not be a people deceived we not think that if we're living by bread alone, we're really living. There's a richness in you, Lord, that exists nowhere else. God, I need my heart to be convinced. I need my heart to be one. I need you to draw me. God, I need your mercy and your grace in my life to help with my weak appetite with my wandering longings that can be satisfied with the simplest, most worthless things. Another day and another week and another month and another year passes. And knowing your nearness is no more real than it was when it started. Lord, we're starting a new year. Lord, we're just a couple of weeks in. God, would you make this the richest feast of a year we've ever had? God, would we emerge, no matter what we look like on the outside, would we emerge well-fed, plump individuals at the end of this year, nourished by the nearness of God, knowing what it is to draw near 
encountering you, Lord, personally, experientially, with power and influence, God, providing strength for our Gethsemanes, faith to cross challenges and difficulties, convincing hearts that have confidence in you. Lord, may we be a people who smell like you because we have been with you and you ooze out of our pores. That's my great desire. That's my great prayer for 2015 for Lakeview Christian Center for myself. Lord, make us to be a people who have digested much. No matter how much we've tasted, God, make us to have digested much. Oh, to see you as you are, to glimpse the wonders yet unseen, assist my sight, unveil my eyes to see you. Lord, to know you as you are, to even dare to speak or stand, though marked beloved, to fall as dead when I see you. Tell of the glories of your name, tell of the glories of your name, oh Lord. 
Thank you for this message. Lord, and as Pastor Keith prayed, we do pray that you would let this message characterize us or that we would be a church who draws near. As your word says, Keith read this scripture earlier. This be our experience this week even. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may not know about, not just taste, but that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lord, we pray that be our experience this week, God. Thank you for this time together. May you be glorified in our lives, we pray.